This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with playwright Sarah Jones about her relationship with her characters. I'm not them, and they are not me. I know I'm very tired if a little bit of me leaks into a character. Here's Debbie Millman. Sarah Jones contains multitudes. One moment, it might be Habiba Rahal, professor of comparative literature. The next moment, it's Officer Joey Moncuso, a 20-year veteran of the force. Or perhaps you might meet Lorraine Levine, a Jewish grandmother who isn't shy to remind you about your manners and will probably tell you to tuck in your shirt. Sarah is a Tony and Obie Award-winning playwright and performer whose one-woman shows are a tour de force of multicultural character studies. Sarah Jones, welcome to Design Matters. Debbie, thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Sarah, the first thing I want to ask you about is your upbringing. What was it like growing up in the UK? Well, I love that you've asked me that question. I don't get it all the time. And the reason for that is probably a bit complicated. But um, I suppose I should say right away that the reason it's challenging for me to talk about my upbringing in the UK is that there was no such thing. I actually speak the Queen's English, but I'm I'm from Queens, New York, <laughs> like you. Yes, Man. indeed. Queens yeah. in the house. Yeah. <laughs> now, I saw an interview that you had with Seth Meyers on his show, wherein you told him you kept a job for months by impersonating an English woman. So tell us about that. <laughs> I, I really did. And I'll be myself to tell the story because otherwise she'll slip in. But there was a moment in New York where you could get a job as a host. You know, in the front of a restaurant, sort of looking down your nose at people. It's not the most noble job. But I walked into a fancy restaurant and said, are you hiring? And they said, well, we really only want to hire English girls. I guess that reinforces the snootiness, you know, at the front of house. And I thought to myself, I can do that. And I said, well, okay, when's the manager in? And they said, I'll come back Tuesday. And I came back Tuesday like this. And I met the manager and I promptly convinced him that this was me and I took the job and kept the job and as you can imagine um, I had co-workers who were also from the UK so it was sort of like oh where'd you go to school oh I'm sorry getting a phone call have to go oh, bye you know I sort of had to dodge my identity <laughs> conversation right. now I understand that after you left that job you ended up meeting one of your co-workers in the gym and you spoke in your normal tone and he was like where did your accent go it was so embarrassing first of all being in the gym in a flop sweat like walking up to somebody realizing you know them and you're like oh hi yeah and he was like oh he just looked so crestfallen that the, you know <laughs> the, the sexy british girl he remembered was this nasal you know american plain old gym rat anyway so yeah not not the let's just say we didn't date. Nothing happened after that. Uh, well, you never know, right? You never know. Uh, I could see that whole, like, king thing. Like, Sarah, talk like an English exactly. girl now. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> let's save that for later. Yes. Yeah. Uh, your characters allow you to play with the mutable spaces between the self and identity. And I want to go into that in depth in a bit. I want to start first with your origin story, where you came from, how you grew up. You're the daughter of two physicians. Is it true that your father taught you the word microorganism when you were four? Yes. Why? But, Why did you need, what were the circumstances of learning or needing to know that particular word? Well, first of all, it, it explains all the organic hand sanitizer in my bag to this day. But he was a medical student when actually I was born. My parents were both undergrads. And so they, you know, sort of as they grew and learned, they would share whatever they were learning at school with their uh, progeny. And okay. so so I learned about microorganisms and, you know, when other kids were coloring or writing on the walls or whatever, I was writing in an anatomy book. Um, yeah, expensive books to have your kid use as a coloring book. But yeah. Now, you're the product of a multiracial, multi-ethnic family, and you're so multi-ethnic. I understand there were times when people asked you if you were adopted. I got that a lot. How did that make you feel? It was awkward. And my mom, I think, tried to... Um, shield me from feeling 
less than around it. I think there was a sense of um, we would sometimes be in public places like a, a store where it looked like I was the little black urchin and here was this white lady and what did these two people have to do with each other? Now, it's important to say my mother's actually mixed race. She just is completely white appearing. And so having people say, that's not your, what do you mean? That's your child? And my mother would say, we're together. And we, we joke that we should write a book called We're, we're together. together. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I read that as you were growing up, there was Dominican music blasting from stereos. There were Christians. There were Jews. And you stated that this is a long story filled with intrigue and interfaith guilt and shame. <laughs> Sounds juicy. What more can you tell us about the inter interfaith guilt and shame? Well, without invoking the interfaith guilt and shame, because other people will be listening to this, and I often joke that my characters are based on people from my real life in large part, but I change the names to protect the innocent and especially the guilty. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, there was a sense of it's not okay to marry outside your race, your religion, to socialize with people who come from a different background than yours. And in my family, it was a free-for-all. We were a quote-unquote checkerboard, you know. And I remember that it was so unusual that my parents wanted to send us to schools where we wouldn't be made fun of. And that that was kind of a core value of ours was where is the inclusive world that we see around our living room? You know, when you left our house or you turned on your television set, everybody lived in these silos and it wasn't safe to belong together really. They sent you to the United Nations International School where you met the seeds of many of the characters you've created in your shows, uh, in particular your French and German teachers. Uh, tell us about them. More, well, uh, you know, it's very normal, uh, the UN school. Uh, I mean, uh, français était mandatoire, French, it's mandatory uh, for everybody, as it should be all over the world. That's my. That's a French opinion, not mine. But, um, you know, meeting these teachers was, it was like being in a museum state all the time. I just sort of felt like I was walking from hall to hall where there was, you know, kind of German culture and French culture. And ich habe ein kleines bisschen Deutsch gestudiert. I learned a little bit of German. And most of all, I think I learned to see the similarities in people even while their you know, differences, whether it was accent or culture, were sort of exploding all around me. It was a really fascinating, sometimes disorienting, but also enriching experience. I understand you were inspired to begin writing when you were introduced to the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Gwendolyn Brooks, Maya Angelou, and the words and music of Gil Scott Heron. Were your parents big fans of the arts? They were. It's interesting, I think, because so my parents met on the campus of Johns Hopkins, and Gil Scott Heron was a student there as well. He was in the master's program when my parents were undergrads. And so my dad and Gil were friends. And I grew up with this awareness of this Uncle Gil figure. But I would also say that growing up in part of the time in Washington, D.C., and then later in New York at the U.N. school, I had the fascinating juxtaposition of a public school education. uh, And that and I often I don't joke about this. It was a wonderful public school experience, which one can have when the schools are well funded, when the teachers are motivated, when there's, you know, real effort put into the level and quality of education for all kids. Then you get an excellent public education system. And I was, I dare say, overprepared when I got to the UN school. And I think I was fortunate to have a sense of um, pride in blackness instilled in me. You know, it was Chocolate City uh, back then. And um, I think one of the interesting things about it was when I heard people um, disparaging, you know, black people, I, I sort of had the opposite image. I thought, but we're scholars, we're poets, we're, um, you know, kind of these inventors of culture. How could people denigrate an entire race of people who actually have contributed so much? So that was, I'm grateful for that early foundation in, you know, all of the black arts and science. I mean, I knew who Garrett A. Morgan was when I was probably, a, you know, six years old. Well, you could talk to him about microorganisms. Who I could talk to about <laughs> microorganisms and the traffic signal, which he invented. <laughs> <laughs> now, at that point in your life, I believe you wanted to be an international affairs lawyer. I really Sarah did. Jones. I can't believe you know that. That's true. How 
how? <laughs> I know. It sounded so glamorous, though. Can't you see me in kind of like Olivia Pope mode, like moving through the world in my sleek suit as an international affair? No, I think it was my love of the people I was meeting. First of all, my family of origin and knowing that, you know, all around my Thanksgiving table, there were relatives who talked like this. There were people from everywhere. And I wanted to be able to speak on behalf of as many people as I felt connected to. Then I realized that I had, you know, I was sort of this creative soul who didn't want to sit down with a whole lot of bylaws. It was much more interesting to me to study you than to study the laws that shape your life. Right. Your parents gave you two choices of schools you could go to for your college education, John Hopkins, where they both went, or Bryn Mawr. You chose Bryn Mawr College, but left after two years for what you've stated were various unsundry reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so the curious me wants to know what were those unsundry yes, reasons? various unsundry. So I would say it was a combination of immaturity on my part. I could not sit still. Philadelphia is a wonderful city to this day. I think what was wrong with me that I felt like I had to go running home to New York every weekend. But I had a restlessness that made me I, – I was able to reap a lot of the benefits of the fabulous Bryn Mawr education that was available to me, but something was calling to me in, from New York. And so my friends and I – I was you know, kind of part of the hip-hop scene. There are stories involving Biggie Smalls and others that I, I – let's, let's hear one. Let's hear one. Well, this one I could share. I had a funny moment where uh, – this was a couple of years ago, I think, on Twitter. Talib Kweli, who's an MC I love and who I knew uh, kind of when I was coming up – randomly tweeted, Biggie Smalls loved Sarah Jones. He had such a big crush on her. And I was like, what? The Twitter sphere is off the chain right now. Like, what am I supposed to do with this information floating around? And then I thought, embrace your inner hip hop girl and let people know that that was part of my feminism. Part Absolutely. of my feminism was, you know, exploring these spaces where these dominant male voices were and inserting my voice wherever I could. Technically, you deferred from Bryn Mawr, but have said that, like Catherine Hepburn, who also left after two years, you're still committed to nonlinear, lifelong learning. Absolutely. I say that with my back molars clenched, just in case I need to return to the main line. <laughs> you started performing your poetry in 1997. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a very difficult year for you. It was the same year that your 18-year-old sister died of a heroin overdose. I'm so sorry, Sarah. Thank you. What motivated you to start performing at that time? You know, the last sentence you uttered says everything. Mm -hmm. My sister, I lost my sister in a way that was so unfathomable, and yet it was such a present part of my life. It was like, um, you know, this new being entered and took took up all of the space in my world, the being of her no longer being, right? And it was the era of heroin chic. So a lot of kids were just trying it. And, and I remember thinking this is without question the most horrific thing that I could ever imagine. And now I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of all of the things that I thought mattered. Um, what other people think of me or what what I might do with my career. It just sort of upended everything in a way that I couldn't know then was going to be ultimately very freeing. And I feel like my sister sort of set my characters free. I had been afraid. Uh, this was the era of, you know, kind of, like I said, hip-hop and sort of spoken word. There was a lot of, you know, you had to talk in a cadence that showed that you cared about the motherland. You know, there was like this whole thing going on. And I was afraid to be too multiculti and not black enough. And I was always just, you know, kind of worried that I wasn't fitting. All of a sudden, it just didn't matter. And I was able to access an authenticity that defied these conventional notions of what was cool or what was popular. And my characters just started leaking out of their own volition. And I really credit my sister with that. Mm. I mean, she really did sort of unearth something in me that I didn't know was there. Yeah. 
that next year, in 1998, you debuted your first character sketch work at the Neorican Poets Cafe mm-hmm. in your show Surface Transit, which ultimately won a Helen Hayes Award and was nominated for a Drama Desk Award. And the show drew upon the diverse group of people, both in your family and in the neighborhood you grew up in in Queens. And is it true that it was based on characters you encountered on your Q46 bus commute to school? It's true. Who knew? A hub of you know, <laughs> creativity. Yes, a hot strap hangers. Of, yes. And, yeah, that's yes. amazing. Yeah. So how did you how did you capture their spirit? How did you decide who you wanted to become? Yes, I think people self-selected. And the way they did that was they were larger than life. And yet I couldn't deny that they were right in front of me. This wasn't central casting. This was someone who who actually talks like this when he gets on the train. This is the actual voices coming out of his mouth. He really is, you know, kind of, yeah, she got the house and the, and the boat. Can you believe that? I mean, get the fuck out of here, you know. That guy, that real person was so compelling to me, I would, you know, sort of subtly eavesdrop for as long as I could, sometimes missing my own real subway stop. In Surface Transit, you first create some of your most popular characters. You created Ms. Lady, who's an older black woman who states she is not homeless, but houseless. Profound realization. Just astounding. You meet Lorraine Levine, who uh, is the aforementioned grandmother. Rashid, the young black male aspiring rapper who is addicted to rhyming and in a recovery program for it, (laughs) and Keisha Ray, a young independent black woman who is frustrated by the misogyny in music. And I understand that you conduct extensive research in order to create your characters. Can you describe some of what you do and how you go about inhabiting them? Because the cadence of your voice changes, the energy in your body morphs, Everything transforms Mm. except your physical presence. Mm. And even your physical presence is transitions with different body language. Mm. But who you are remains who you are. How do you do this? Well, it's interesting you say this because I recently had a massage therapist I've worked with for a long time. I sometimes will go into character on the table if I'm in a creative mode. It's very helpful. He has told me that I actually change. My body changes. It freaked me out when he told me. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to accept that this is something about the way I work. But it really is a matter of seeing you and feeling such a gratitude for your you-ness that I'm willing to kind of go to any length to represent that as accurately as I can. So it does mean, uh, for example, uh, with Miss Lady, you know, I had to be willing to get very not glamorous. The first time I did Miss Lady, uh, I thought I'm never going to get a date again, you know, after people see my face looking like this. But I would rather um, honor her and look like however I got to look like so that I could really um, let her have her time in, in on the center stage. That's what I want, somebody who would never get a chance to be on stage at all. Uh, you know, I took Miss Lady to Davos, to yes. the World Economic Forum. And I remember thinking, what am I? This is great. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. So you literally transcend your physical self. You have very few props, no makeup changes. Is it a conscious thing where you're thinking, okay, now I'm going to change my voice. It's going to go into this cadence. Now I'm going to use my eyes in this way. Because I'm sitting in front of you, watching you do this, and you physically become different. I want to say I'm not trained, right? I I left Bryn Mawr before I could soak up any of the wonderful theater department they had there. And what I found is that the people themselves, if I really allow them into my mind's eye and then the kind of kryptonite for me is a mirror, as long as I'm not in front of a mirror and I can't see this physical body I'm in. And when I'm Lorraine Levine, it's, you know, I don't, sometimes I don't have my glasses, which is so frustrating. But when I have them, hi, Debbie Sweetheart, by the way. Hi, hi Lorraine. Hi. You know, it's so important uh, to have. Um, I think for Sarah, you know, she wants to get out of the way. I think that's what it is. She tries to get out of the way so we can be here 
you know, because she's a, I don't know if you've seen her, but she's very big. She gets in the way. <laughs> she's tall. She's tall. Sarah, let's talk about Lorraine's right hand. Oh, yeah. The palsy. So Lorraine and I have been having this debate because she doesn't love that she has a tremor in her hand, and yet she gesticulates. She has all her life, and I have relatives. She's loosely based on real relatives of mine. and uh, Who did a shout-out at Katie Lazarus's podcast oh with you. <laughs> you can't take them anywhere. <laughs> Hi, Aunt Lisa. So, <laughs> there. yes. So the feeling of knowing Lorraine wishes her hands weren't doing this, and yet, you know, she's all hands. There's something so poignant about that to me. It's like, you know, watching a dancer who, I mean, all they are is this movement in this body, and perhaps they now have to use a cane or they have to... There's a certain way that her shaking hand... For me, I've actually been injured. I can't remember where I was, but there was something going on. I had like a shoulder thing or something. But when it was time to be Lorraine, I was able to do it. She was able to do what she needed to do, even though I was... It was. It's a very strange experience. After I saw Sell by Date and watched Lorraine and her hand, and I thought, how does she do that? And I tried to do it. And it's just it's just not possible. And it reminded me of seeing Vanessa Redgrave. I mm-hmm. saw her on stage. And in the show, um, her character has uh, warped fingers. Mm-hmm. And they were warped for the entire production. Yes. But they were so warped that I actually thought, I wonder, I if wonder she if she's really... okay. And then when she came out for this for the curtain call, her hands were perfect. And how were you able to get that kind of control over just one small part of your body? I really do think it is a sense of responsibility to Lorraine that then translates into a focus. It's not happening consciously. I really want to say I spend enough time with the person that they then inhabit me. And then sort of the technical details, you know, find their way. But at no point do I sit down and think, oh, I really need to make sure I'm doing exactly this. I will say, though, that over time, things shift in the characters as they age, right? Mm. Lorraine's voice has changed a bit. It has changed lower. She used to be up here, you know. And then she sounded more like one of my other relatives. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes, and then it is. I spent more time with the other person and she started to drop down more here. So I let them go where they're going. How about Rashid? Is he here today? Yeah, you know, first of all, I wanted to say, Debbie, um, yo, your podcast is is dope. So I, I, yo, all the people you, you interviewed and everything, I told Sarah Jones, what took us so long? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm glad we here. But yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like for me, first of all, I just think it's real dope that I get to come out here and meet people like you. You know what I'm saying? I'm Sarah Jones know me because, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I don't know if you were a fan of hip-hop music or whatever. Oh, yeah. But um, all right. But um, some people, you know what I'm saying, they ain't really feeling it. But you know what I'm saying? For me, I started out in hip-hop. I, I was an MC. You know what I'm saying? I ain't got no microphone right now, but I used to always tell people the way you can know I was an MC is because I hold the microphone in the official MC posture. It's like upside down, right close to your mouth like this right here. Get your point across. Yeah. Anyway, that's, you know what I'm saying? For me, this is dope right here. Just, you know what I'm saying? Conversating with people. Yeah. You said that you're interested in the invention of self or selves, mm-hmm. and that we're all born into certain circumstances with particular physical traits, unique developmental experiences, geographical and historical contexts. And you go on to ask, but then what? Right. To what extent do we self-construct, do we self-invent? Right. How much of your character invention has influenced who you are now? Mm. No, that's Powerful question, Debbie. I, You know, it's funny. Thinking about and being Rashid, you know, he had a certain kind of invented masculinity, you know, like his bravado and his hip-hop kind of persona. I always wondered, what would it be like if he got to soften a little bit 
But and went to therapy. Oh, went to therapy, which he's not interested in, I've asked him. But <laughs> as I watch all of the characters and, you know, how they come to be who they are, Nereida, there's, you know, like, for me, it's so powerful right now to be a Latin, member of the Latinx community in this country with everything that's happening. I get to say my part. There was times when Sarah Jones, sometimes she wouldn't bring me certain places. Now I get to be, like, front and center. You know what I mean? Like, as the world changes, like, we all get to be there. And as I think about who I bring with me and why and where, I get to see my own evolution. So they influence me and how I see myself as, you know, hopefully um, a participant in a larger conversation about community, about social justice, about theater and culture. Yeah. You have said that empathy is a portal Mm -hmm. into saving ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about how that empathy impacts how you portray your characters and how you believe that empathy can indeed save ourselves from ourselves. Right. I, I, that, I think it's that, right? It's the kind of to live in a culture where self-alienation can be kind of the norm without our even realizing it. A culture that says, you're not doing enough. You're not perfect enough. You you know, what's wrong with you? You know, keep up with so-and-so. Go on Instagram and compare and despair with everybody you see. It's so hard to just come home to ourselves and have a sense of self-compassion, whatever it is we do. Um, and I think by cultivating compassion for other people, by standing in the shoes of another person and imagining for a moment what their experience is, that they are doing the best they can with what they have at every moment. Even the people we cast as monsters in our world. Imagine that if we were standing in their shoes, we'd understand kind of the logic behind everything they do, how they feel, how they behave. And there's a kind of alchemy that happens where I develop self-compassion through that compassion. And it sort of works in the other direction. If I have self-compassion, if I'm less critical and um, exacting about every detail of my life in ways that actually feel punishing, you know, I may do well and achieve. I've actually had that experience in my life of achieving a great deal and still feeling like it's never going to be enough. Yeah. That drives me to be harder on others. It drives me to judge others as well. And so I find that the reverse, when I can loosen and soften and get a bit gentler about how I see my own, uh, you know, ability to take up space, however imperfectly on this planet, I can accept the ways others are eking out an existence, you know, doing the best they can. And then I can take it a step further to actually loving them, respecting them, seeing, you know, kind of the bright spots in everyone. Yeah. The one common denominator that all of your characters embody is a lack of self-loathing. I feel one of the things that I've enjoyed about getting to know the characters is their lack of shame about who they are. Mm. They are all very upfront about their shortcomings, mm. but not in a in a sort of I've learned this through therapy way. It's just this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Mm. And I find that to be so comforting in a way. Mm. There was such a sense of these people are inherently lovable. Mm. That's Oh, that's so gratifying to hear. And you're helping me realize they do that for me. They, yeah. You know, they yeah. kind of strip away my shame in a lovely way. I'll sort of see how out loud and proud, you know, Rashid will talk about how he's not very well educated. And I'll think, oh, boy, I'm not going to shrink the next time I think oh, I should have gone back and gotten that Ph.D. I'm going to say it's OK that, you know, I have the Kate Hepburn approach to my <laughs> undergrad Absolutely. Yeah. In Surface Transit, your character, Keisha Ray, performed a poem you wrote titled Your Revolution, Mm. which was banned by the FCC for indecency. (gasps) So let's talk about that. First of all, you sued the FCC. You're the first performer that ever sued the FCC, and you won. I did. I've watched that poem now several times. What was so indecent about it, <laughs> given the world we're living in? I mean, this wasn't 1950. Right. This was the 90s. Right. Pussies were not being grabbed. Exactly. In this right. Exactly. And right. you don't even use the word pussy. No. You just refer to something between, between your, your thighs, thighs but God never forbid. actually articulate anything more detailed. Right. So what was so offensive about it? Why do you think you were chosen to have this happen? Well, this was the moment of kind of the rise of Bush family values culture, but, you know, W. 
And I think it was Michael Powell, who oddly is Colin Powell's son, but he was the head of the FCC. And I think there was this push to help people feel like the FCC was protecting a certain kind of pious, you know, American values. Anyway, Eminem and I were the only two artists to be censored by this new charge for decency. And of course, there was nothing indecent about the poem. I was parodying songs that were already playing freely on the radio. But it was a feminist context, and I was easy to come after. And it was really a matter of principle for me because all of a sudden I had, you know, I think, I don't know if it was Sesame Street, or but I was interested in doing some kids-related work. And I thought, I can't be the pornographic rapper that they're making me out to be. I just didn't want to no, it let it. No it was sense. ridiculous. It I mean, you so did ridiculous. the badunk dunk for Missy Elliott, Swerk <laughs> It, which was far more provocative than your poem. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your Sesame Street character. So you Aww. successfully won. Congratulations. Yay. I got, they reversed the censorship. It was such a good feeling. And then you did become a Sesame Street cra- character, Ms. Noodle. I was Ms. Noodle. So clearly the indecency didn't stick, which is a good feeling. And I, I have to say Sesame Street partially raised me. My parents were medical students. Oh. Yeah, who had so little time, and it was a f- wonderful feeling to get to give back to you know this other family of mine of Muppets. <laughs> now, was it hard to inhabit a scripted character that you didn't write? Not really. I'm actually discovering that I love it. It you know when I let go of the I think there this is the joke. Um, you know I've talked to all of the solo performers I love, who's many of whom have become friends or mentors of mine, and whether it's. Tracy Ullman or John Leguizamo or Lily Tomlin, you know, we talk about how there's something about being able to populate the whole world yourself and you get to control it. So all of a sudden I get to let go of the control freak part of me that's like, I'm going to write all the lines and do everything and be everybody and let somebody else create a world that I then get to inhabit. And it's been a lot of fun to practice doing other people's writing. Based on Surface Transit's success, Mm -hmm. in 1999, you were invited to be a regular on the MTV series, The Lyricist Lounge Show, but you ultimately walked away after the first episode. Tell us what happened. So I had, it was a really challenging experience, and I was new and green and trying to figure out how do I maintain my integrity? And, you know, I mean, it's interesting, branding, right? Like I had a a brand, at least certainly in my own mind, I knew that I wanted to be about authenticity, integrity, all of these buzzwords, but from a place of, you know, this was how I... Uh, survived the slings and arrows of misogyny. And I'm not just talking about hip hop. It was, you know, Howard Stern or just whatever it was that was casting women as objects all the time still in the 90s. I wanted to be able to embody something that, you know, stood in strong opposition to that. And this show was great, but it also had some scripted elements that I thought were really degrading. And I worried so much that I was going to end up a bitch and a hoe on, you Well, know, didn't they ask you to be a Puerto Rican woman with nine children? Yes, it was stuff like that. And I just thought, I don't want to, you know, I just, uh, this is not worth it. It's not worth it to ride limousines and walk red carpets if this is how I, you know, am portraying other people or myself. And eventually, I want to say, to their credit, they were willing to change the writing staff. And, and it ended up being a great show with, you know, another actress who I love to this day. But at the time, it just wasn't something I could do, and I walked away. Were you worried? Were you scared? Did you have regrets at the time? I felt, are you kidding? I was like, I'm never going to fly a first-class plane again. You know, I was like, this this was going to be so much fun. What did I just do? I'll never work in this town again. But I ended up meeting Meryl Streep because I walked away. Yeah. Which I think is, Isn't that amazing? It's a wonderful Let, Let's talk reminder. about that. You yeah. met her during your run of Women Can't Wait, which was your second one-person show, and it was commissioned by the human rights group Equality Now and the Ford Foundation. Mm-hmm. Following the first performance, you were featured in the New York Times and made the cover of Ms. Magazine. And at that point in your life, you were 26. Mm-hmm. And in the New York Times article, you stated that you've always got some sort of axe to grind <laughs> in your work. And I'm wondering, do you still feel that way? No. I've decided that axe to grind was something I let the world superimpose onto me. And there was this sort of this illusion of a separation between, quote unquote, political poetry or theater or, you know, agitprop work and, you know, theater for its own sake that's, you know, sort of more pure and, you know, that that's sort of the more desired road to take. And I now realize that all work is political. 
Some of it's apolitical, but that's a political choice. And I think it's a luxurious political choice that says, you know, nothing's kind of impinging on my rights, so I'm just going to write about anything I want. Um, And so I don't take anything away from work that doesn't directly address, you know, say, political issues of the day. But I think it's not about having an axe to grind. It's sort of about having a point of view, heaven forbid. Well, that's what I think is so interesting about your characters, because they're not grinding axes. They're actually just talking authentically about their experience in life. They're just living. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is when you met Meryl Streep. She was in one of your performances. So did she come up to you after the show? Did she tell us how that happened? Yeah. So I got to perform at a benefit that Meryl was, you know, she lends her voice to so many wonderful causes. And Equality Now is one of the most powerful um, human rights organizations working for women and girls. They still are. And it was a fortifying moment for me as a person to have clear evidence that when I follow that kind of, you know, still small voice that's saying, don't do the bitches and hoes sketches, just trust yourself, even if, you know, your agent or somebody else says, no, what are you doing? Trust yourself. You will meander you know, down some other path and find your way to something beyond what you could have planned for yourself. I watched an interview with Meryl Streep wherein she said that she fell in love with you. Your deep understanding of other people and the compassionate understanding you have about how to present this understanding to the world. Mm-hmm. And she also said this about you. Sarah Jones changes colors right before your eyes. Mm-hmm. What was that kind of attention like for you? Uh, even now, I'm kind of going, Ugh. <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, especially to have a person with her platform amplify my voice that way. It was, you know, my head was on the back of buses. You know, it was really weird to, like, see my own advertisements and... Um, and she produced your play. She produced she, then she, in right. 2004. She produced your play Bridge and Tunnel. Right. I mean, just marketing and an ad campaign all around me. I sort of thought, but I'm the scrappy kid from the New Eurekan who, you know, does the lights and the <laughs> staging and, <laughs> and sweeps up after sweeps I'm up done, after yeah. I'm done. Right. And so it was. It took some adjusting. It took some adjusting. Can we meet some of the characters from Bridge and Tunnel? Oh, I'd love you to meet somebody. Let's see. Well, you talked a little bit about you. T- you shared Narita with us just a little bit. Actually, it's really great that I get this chance to, to speak right now because, first of all, thank you so much. This podcast is amazing to me. Like all of your guests, it's just incredible to think that somebody like me, you know, I'm not like a an artist or that kind of person. But you know, Sarah Jones, we talk about the fact that actually we are all artists in a certain kind of way because, like, I'm making my life. Like, I'm a maker too, you know, and I'm trying to like when I you know, invite my community, like Bridge and Tunnel was about people from who are not born here, from, you know, immigrants. And, you know, this whole country is immigrants. Like, nobody wants to admit it, unless, you know, but if you're not Native American, then, you know, you're an immigrant too. It's just how many generations. But, like, to me, that's how I make. I like to, like, help people to see that we're not as dissimilar as they think we are. Um, Narita, are you still working at the Dominican American Benevolent Organization for Mothers and Babies, the acronym of which is DABAM? You know, it really was the bomb, but eventually we had to like, we had to stop saying the whole thing. And, you know, with terrorism and everything, people would get confused. So we stopped saying it. You know, you can't even make a phone call. And it's like, oh, my God. But so yeah. now you just say the whole thing to me. We just say the whole Dominican American Benevolent Organization for Mothers and Babies. You have to learn to say it really, really fast. <laughs> and talk to me about the term that I've heard you use uh, called Latina splaining. So I have to Latina splain sometimes for people who, you know, you say Latinx and they're like, oh, like, what is that? Is that like a size of clothing for Latina people? Like, what are you talking about? And it's like, okay. Everybody, let's just try to, like, get with the progressive program. Because if we don't, we see what happens, okay? Like, look around. So it's time for everybody to, like, stop acting like it's weird. Just practice. You can learn how to say new things. Tell us about Pauline Ning and the relationship that she has with her daughter. Uh, So uh, first I want to say thank you, uh, Debbie, for uh, this opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, my name is Pauline Ning, and uh, Sarah Jones put me in this uh, bridge and tunnel because uh, I want to practice uh, talking to people in public uh, about something very difficult for me, that my daughter, uh, she's uh, different than I expect. Uh, that she does not want to get married. And when I ask her, she says, oh, mom, I'm not ready. 
um, I don't like boys. I said, yes, all men can be difficult, but all women have to get used to that. She said, no, mom, I mean, I don't like boys. I like girls. I am lesbian. So this is, was very difficult for me. Uh, that's the story that I talk about in uh, Bitch and Tunnel. But I think so important for all people uh, to learn new things. Uh, like if your kid's different than you expect, maybe you have to learn something new. We also met Professor Habiba Rahal, who teaches comparative literature at Queen's College. Well, I want to first of all just uh, say shukran, thank you, Devi, for having us uh, here to visit with you. And yes, I think we are in a time of more need for comparative literature than ever. Sometimes I think the best comparative literature I, see, seeing, I am seeing today, it's on the protest signs. Uh, in the short form. Uh, but I joke, but I am also very serious that this is the time that we need to come together out of our silos and our separate uh, chambers more than ever if we are going to preserve the way of life of this country. Sarah, when you are able to inhabit these characters, you do so many different voices do the characters come out fully formed or do you practice their voices? H how do you know how to to use that gravelly bit mm -hmm. when we meet Bella in a little bit? She has the vocal fry, which is just <laughs> unbelievable. How do you how do you get to that tonality? Mm. I think it's practice. I mean, I, I sometimes liken what I do to what I hear musicians talk about. You know, the and it's interesting, I get to I'm inspired by role models like you in podcast land because I'm working on a new podcast and I've gotten to interview musicians I love. So one the first episode of the podcast has India Ari, a great singer, great human being. And we talked about vocal training and, you know, listening, imitating the sound of, you know, for a lot of um, improvisational singing, you'll hear people you know, kind of imitate a trumpet or they'll imitate, you know, sort of they'll use the human voice to find the sound of a, a violin strain. And I'm sort of doing the same thing. I'm imitating the sound that I hear and trying to reproduce it back as best I can. And I don't really think about where it lives. I've had linguists and other people now look at my work and say, you're doing this. This is where your glottal stop is doing that. And I say, oh, great. Thanks for telling me what I'm doing. But I think I approach it from... Um, Imitation. It really is just a matter of repetition, those Malcolm Gladwellian hours, and uh, then reflecting it back. It's very important to me to make sure I have some kind of call and response. Like the first time I ever did Mrs. Ling, was I asked Chinese-American friends to listen and see what they heard, and I was so grateful for their feedback and support. You said that looking in a mirror is sort of kryptonite for you. How, what is it like when you see yourself perform, when you see yourself on the TED stage or in videos of your performances? That is not as challenging. Watching myself is okay, but in the moment that I am performing, if someone were to bring a mirror right in front of me, I think it would feel like that don't look down, you know, when you're climbing. It's sort of like a, a, a vertigo, a, an energetic vertigo would take over because I'm not, I'm not them and they are not me. And um, I really try to notice. I know I'm very tired if a little bit of me leaks into a character or if I'm, you know, speaking extemporaneously as them. And then I notice, oh, that was a little Sarah flourish in there. Mm. Then I know, OK, I'm not fully present in the character. You won a Tony Award for Bridge and Tunnel, but after the monumental success, you said this, I spent just enough time building up a self-image that I lost contact with my true self, and you ended up feeling like Bridge and Tunnel was a fluke, that you were a fraud, mm. and that you lost your compass, and you then went through a period of hiding. How did you find your balance again and then feel confident enough to reemerge? Very hesitantly very slowly, painstakingly, sometimes gracelessly. Like I had these moments where I thought, I'm just going to quit. I don't want to do Why? this anymore. Why? Did you feel like you had lost yourself amidst your characters or that 
You felt like you couldn't do it again? I think it was placing expectations on the work. I've heard people, you know, speak of it in much simpler terms of just, you know, the fear of a sophomore slump. But I didn't feel like there had been a freshman triumph. (laughs) So there was this feeling of if I am requiring my work to pay dividends somehow, whether that's financially or that it has to get these certain accolades, it's burdening it. It became top heavy. And the characters sort of went on strike. You know, I couldn't get them to come out and work when I was saying, come on, guys, we have to go do, you know, fancy so-and-so A-lister's wedding. And they thought, we don't want to be an act at fancy people's weddings just because you want to get on a private plane. Sorry. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're in charge. (laughs) Yeah. Which I think is to say my soul is in charge, you know. Right. The characters really emanate from the deepest least self-conscious place within me. And the more self-image conscious I was, the kind of larger the chasm I had to bridge to get to the work that I really cared about as opposed to the work that might sell or be popular. You reemerged and completed another show titled Sell by Date, a show that I had the great good fortune of being able to see Um, And this is a show that examines the commercial sex industry Mm -hmm. from different points of view. What made you decide to choose this particular topic? I knew that this topic was sort of gnawing at my my conscience. And I had been, you know, kind of dodging and, you know, deflecting and avoiding it. And I thought, what am I afraid of? And it really was that I long to entertain in a substantive way. But humor is everything for me. It is, you know, kind of the lubricant that helps all of the other gears work. And I thought, where do you find the funny in talking about, you know, commercial sexual exploitation? Like, that just doesn't sound like a knee-slapping good time at the theater. (laughs) And so, um, as I hope you, you know, experienced, I do manage to find the humor, And the ways in which this topic is about humanity. It's not about, you know... It's about dignity. It's about dignity. It's about humanity. It's about power. It's about self-determination and how we all walk around in the world superimposing labels onto people, onto each other, how we control the narrative around women and sexuality, and therefore men and trans people. We're all sort of caught up in this web of what I think are vestiges of puritanical ideas about sex and, you know, women and and, um, equality. So I really wanted to delve into all of that, and I figured out a way to do it that was fun for me and for the audience. You start the show speaking in your posh British accent. I do indeed. You embody a very poised, very earnest lecturer named Serene. Uh, We do know that it's later than the year 2032, the date of the last fiscal crisis, when the Koch brothers, who were still alive, have bought the Bronx from the city of New York. Yes, what what them. year is it in the show? Yes. Or is that a is that a, a closely held secret? It's a closely held secret because I do like people to come to the theater and do their own arithmetic as it were. But I can tell you that when this piece was first being written, at one point Donald Trump was actually in the script. And what's so appalling and sort of fascinating about that fact is that Sarah in writing it, thought, I don't even want to dignify that man with an appearance in my show, never thinking that three years later he'd find his way onto everybody's radar in, in, in such a sort of, you know. Yeah, I don't think Matt Greening thought about that either when he put him in that episode of The Simpsons. Oh, God. I mean, were we all sort of, did we have our finger on some horrible, anyway, now that it's manifested as it has, I'll just say that we're far enough into the future that right now is a distant memory, (laughs) whether that makes you happy (laughs) Which is good. Yeah. But at this point in the future, prostitution is legalized, which opens the way for popular and profitable hotels with enhanced amenities, as you call them, which some people still insist, as you also tell us, on calling brothels. There are also... Hip-hop concerts for the elderly. Very important. You must keep them entertained. That killed me because I figured that that would be me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it would be Sarah as well. That's not me. Um, talk about how you structured the show. You present multiple what you call Bert 
modules from that period in history, starting circa 2016. So what is a BERT? Right. So BERT. So this technology, bioempathetic resonant technology, grew out of the idea that because we can record dreams, which we can now, I can literally record the formation of neuropeptides in my brain as I sleep, and then upload them to your brain so that you can recall the dream closely enough to what I dreamt that we now know we can have this exchange of information, So right? this is how you create your characters, isn't it, Sarah Jones? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> the bird secret is out! No. <laughs> but I did think, oh, if we can upload dreams, then we can upload experiences, not just watching a film of what someone else is going through, which already, you know, elicits a, a very empathetic response a lot of the time. But imagine if you actually lived what another person is living. So your body temperature changes and your physicality, everything about your experience in that moment is being borrowed from that other person's library of experiences. And so that's the device that allows us to travel through time and across continents to literally experience other people's sort of snatches of other people's stories. Can we meet some of the folks from Cell by Date? I think they'd be happy to meet you. I'd love to meet Bella. Bella, who is named after Bella Abzug, the famous feminist in history. Yeah, that's actually like, so first of all, like, Thinking about, like, feminism and, like, the fact that, like, for some people it's, like, trending or whatever. But, like, it's actually a very durable, like, super important, like, fixed, you know, like, trait for us, like, who really are feminists. And, like, I, like you said, like, my mom, like, named me for, like, Bella Abzug. But, like, also, like, I just feel that, like, feminism has to also, like, make space for being hot. And I feel like in Cell by Day, like, we try to, like— explore that. Yeah. Bella, tell me about the word stricticulous. Stricticulous. Oh, restriculous. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Restriculous is like a word that I made that means like so strict, it's ridiculous. And like, I need it for like, people who are like, how can you be a feminist and talk like that? Like, talk like what? Like, I'm expressing, like, ideas and my voice sounds a certain way. But, like, I feel that, like, we have to reach out, like, across the vocal ranges. How did you do that vocal fry Sarah Jones? <laughs> I am I am just in the presence of genius. Okay. I am overwhelmed. I'm verklempt, as our friend Lorraine would say. Well, Bella is fla- so flattered that she elicits that response from you. You know, I had an assistant I was working with who's actually a very talented artist in her own right who sounded somewhat like that and is a serious scholar and intellectual and, you know, kind of all of this fabulous, like, cultural rigor. And she'd talk about it like that. And I was like, wow, this is... And then I went on enough book tours and, you know, met people in different places where the keynote speaker would come up and she'd be like, this is my third book and I want to talk about, like, the rubric. And I'd be like, rubric? You can't (laughs) say words like that with that kind of vocal fry. And I realized, like, I have to take women seriously regardless Regardless of, like, what's happening, like, in this general, like, larynx area. Amazing. (laughs) Then we meet Maureen Fitzroy, who is the living embodiment of what you refer to as the whore-virgin dichotomy. Right. Um, Well, I think it's like, you know, for certain people, um, women, they've got kind of like two roles. You know, you're damned if you do. You're damned if you do. I mean, whatever you do, you're just damned. And um, especially coming out of Ireland, um, for me, um, I ended up in both the convent, uh, first in the convent and then in the prostitution after. And you have to imagine that the two polar opposites of um, what men have been telling women for centuries they're allowed to do. Either way, you're sort of stuck, aren't you? And you really never had a say in it yourself, did you? You worked for a while, Maureen, um, in the caregiving business as a a caregiver for elderly, but then changed professions. Tell me why. I did indeed. Well, so that's interesting, right, is that um, there's a couple of stories going on there, but um, there's a Jamaican lady actually in the play who talks about that, you know, she went from having to diaper 
80 year olds um, who are having their issues physically or whatever it is and she realised if I have to touch another white man's backside I might as well make a lot more money than this and go into the ones who want to have a diaper on for a different reason if you know what I mean. I do, right. I do. How about Praveen Manvi, our human rights activist? Well, I have to tell you that I have known Sarah Jones for many years now that I met her when she was first uh, going on tour in India and she's a very nice woman, a bit tall, but other than that, uh, she blended in quite well. But I think that the talk of human rights that we must remember on the continent of, of uh, the subcontinent, for example, that we have been engaged in these conversations for so very long. And so it's wonderful to hear people talking about intersectionality in cell by date. We are talking about kind of the future and where does that natural evolution bring us? And will we get to a point where, for example, what would it be like if men had a vested interest in the empowerment of women, if they actually discovered that it benefits them, better sex even, when you give women their rights, that perhaps you actually get to benefit even in the selfish ways. So I like people to think about that possibility. Thank you, Praveen. Serene talks about the age when all girls in the society first become exposed to sexualized images of women. And she brings out a doll called Barbie. Nice Barbie. <laughs> and, and initially uh, shares that she thought that the doll was an educational tool for anorexia prevention. I did indeed. It seemed so obvious, but apparently no. She was considered a very wholesome symbol of femininity. Right. And and uh, we do note in the play that many young girls began what was called dieting. Uh, this was restricting food intake on purpose by the age of six and um, sort of thinking of themselves as um, ranking themselves based on attractiveness by right around the same time, six years of age, sort of evaluating themselves as though they're living in some horrific pageant of their own invention. Serene, you also talk about how binary gender was at that time. It was indeed, right. They had, um, I believe there was some sort of hideous debate about whether they could share bathrooms. Can you imagine? Quite strange. Uh, looking back, you know. So interesting. It is indeed. I wonder if we'll be embarrassed. Well, I, I'll just say, uh, as a voice coming to you from the future, it does look like it was not easy living in a time like that. But I know it was not all bad news either. So your program is proof of that. <laughs> Thank you. Sarah, in an interview with Dana Rock, she said this about you, Sarah Jones. I'm sure that when people look at someone like you, someone who has done what you have done, someone who has achieved the level of success that you have, they may be tempted to think that it was easy somehow. Or when people consider a couple that has been happily married for years and years, the tendency might be to think that the couple has an effortlessly great marriage. Mm. I think that people have a tendency to look at certain people who have something good and believe that perhaps those people have something that others don't have, something special, rather than the fact that they have done the work. You responded by talking about Miguel Algarin's book, Love is Hard Work. Can you talk about that book and the impact it had on you? Mm, yes, thank you for invoking Miguel and Dana Rock. You know, this idea that love and work are almost synonymous, that if I care deeply about anything, a relationship, my craft, the hours I put into befriending that person or that activity and sort of developing an ongoing committed relationship to that person or activity. That's work slash love. It really is sort of one concept for me. And the more I think about it that way, the more it demystifies the process that Dana was talking about in that quote. And it makes it, it democratizes our world, a world that can rank us all, you know, really kind of in what I think are reductive ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I often say that I believe that we're living in a 140 character culture mm. where everybody expects immediate gratification or immediate success. And if you get rejected or if you have a failure, that that somehow means you need to change courses when it might just mean that you need to double down and continue the work. Yes, continue the love. 
The last thing I want to ask you about is your brand new podcast, Playdate with Sarah Jones. Do you need to book anybody or can you just like have conversations with your characters? So I get to book people. (laughs) I get to learn to play well with others. It's not just me in my apartment talking to myself. But... It is me in my apartment with guests I love. I in, know. I, India so Ari, you yeah. have Elizabeth Gilbert, yeah. you have Baratunde Thurston, yeah. Lily Tomlin. Yay. So I believe that the first two episodes are out where it's about the show and about the host. How often will we be able to hear new shows and how can we listen to them? Yeah. So now if you go to Sarah Jones online, my website, you can find the podcast or you can go to PRI. They're my partner in this podcast, PRI.org. Playdate is the name of the show, as you said. And we have these teasers up, trailers that people can see now and listen to. But there's actually a video, which I thought was really funny. Oh, we're going to do a video to launch a podcast. Of course you do that. But it's really fun to kind of launch this fertile ground for play. And we've been talking about love and work. And for me, play kind of, you know, links in with that synonymous idea of I love this and I want to relish. I want to enjoy my practice. And so in sitting down with all of my wonderful guests, including, by the way, Maria Popova, the great curator of brain pickings, and, um, you know, so many other, Sharon Salzberg, anybody whose work I love, whose love I work and whose play I work and love gets to come for a play date and uh, we'll actually have the first two episodes, India and Bharatunde, up starting April 13th. So that'll be our real launch and we hope everybody will come over and have a play date with us. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait to hear them all. Sarah, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today and thank you for portraying humanity with such an empathetic and empowering voice. Debbie, I can say the same right back to you. Thank Thank you for having me. To find out more about Sarah Jones and where she's performing and what she's doing and to listen to her new podcast, go to sarahjonesonline.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.